Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 16 of Caro Pop. This week's guest is producer, though he doesn't like the term, audio engineer and musician Steve Albini. He's the owner and chief engineer of the Chicago recording studio Electrical Audio, where famously he works only on analog equipment. As is often the case, he has strong feelings on this subject. He believes analog tape is the only archival medium that guarantees a recording's long-term survival. Steve Albini is one of the busiest engineers and producers in the business. You've heard of some of his clients. He recorded the Pixies' debut album, Surfer Rosa, and the Breeders' Pod. as well as P.J. Harvey's aggressive second album, Rid of Me. Kurt Cobain was such a fan of his work and the raw drum and guitar sounds that he captured that Nirvana hired Albini to produce In Utero, the band's third and final studio album. I'm not like Albini also recorded early albums by Chicago's Urge Overkill and the Jesus Lizard, as well as later works by Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. Schneider, Bush, Cheap Trick, Joanna Newsom, and the Stooges, Manic Street Creatures, Jarvis Cocker, and Ty Siegel. you think of Steve Albini as just a loud music guy, you should know that Robbie Folks recorded some awesome bluegrass albums with him as well. You took the wheel up 119, I scanned the road ahead, trying to let all I could see, cover up all that I'd read. That hotel would not likely let a working man lie down, like a current through its walls, ran the sorrow and the sound. Albini has recorded many other artists you probably haven't heard because he works a lot and intends to be as accessible and affordable as possible. He's known for refusing to take points, that is, a percentage of a band's royalties, otherwise common practice among big-name producers. Some in the industry say he's leaving a lot of money on the table, such as when he took a flat fee for his work with Nirvana. 
But to Albini, this is an ethical and moral issue. That money, he thinks, belongs to the artists who are doing the creative heavy lifting, the musicians. Albini is a musician himself, having fronted and played guitar in the band's Big Black, Great man. But don't. And shellac, the last of which remains active. He thinks too many people who aren't musicians presume to know how musicians think. He accuses me of this at some point. My conversation with Steve Albini took place over two sessions. The first in person at Electrical Audio, the second recorded virtually a couple of weeks later. So we're breaking this conversation into two episodes. In this, the first one, we go into detail about Electrical Audio, the equipment he uses and how analog and digital technology have improved since he built and opened the studio in 1997. How does he listen to music at home? Might he record digitally if not for his archival concerns? Do bands record with him expecting a specific Albini sound? How does he feel about bands that consider the studio another instrument? Which band would he love to get into electrical audio more than any other? Steve Albini is a smart, sharp guy who always pushes you to think deeper, whether you're addressing culture, artistry, or commerce. I hope you get as much from this provocative conversation as I did. Here's Steve Albini on Carol Pop. Welcome to Carol Bob, Steve Albini. Thank you. Um, Thanks for having me. So we're, we're sitting in your control room B, is that what you call it? Exactly. The control room of Studio B at Electrical Audio in Chicago. And and how much of the equipment in here is was here when you built this, and how much of it is stuff you've replaced over the years? Uh, the vast majority of this equipment predates the existence of the studio like most of this equipment was in the home studio that i had that was about a mile from here in this control room i would say 80 percent of this control room was moved intact from that little bungalow on francisco street to this building when the studio opened and over time we've you know modified and adapted and acquired some stuff but the, the bulk of it has stayed the same and then you have your studio a control room as well same same with that no, Studio A was sort of top to bottom brand new. Uh, I had one studio at the house on Francisco Street, and when we bought this building, we bought it with the intent of making two studios in this building. Um, and Studio A was the sort of nicer, fancier of the two studios, so we had a new console, new tape machine, and a, a lot of the equipment in the a lot of the secondary equipment in that studio was acquired for Studio A. Is newer so so you're known for recording all analog all the tape. Are there improvements in technology with that, or is it just a matter of... Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, just even small things like um, test and measurement equipment now allows you to do refinements of circuits and maintenance that were impossible 50 years ago, for example. Um, there There have been improvements made in 
what you could call generic components, the things that you use to build electronics out of, right? Um, resistors, for example, are now much tighter tolerances and you know, the, the cost of precision has come way, way, way down. So it's now possible to make analog or improve analog equipment to be better than it was in its heyday, as it were. One of the tape machines that we use regularly here is the, the Ampex ATR tape machines. Those were new in the late 80s in the mid to late 80s. And since then, um, there have been techniques developed for refurbishing those machines and optimizing those machines that makes them better than they were when they were brand new. So those machines are now operating, you know, 30, 40, sometimes 50 years after their introduction, they're operating better than they ever were, and they allow you to do better, more accurate recording and playback than you could during their heyday. So is this a moment in time where you could basically make recording sound better than you ever could before? Uh, well, to a given standard, yes. I would say there are certain things that in certain things are just not applicable to the analog domain. Like people who work in computers for making purely electronic music that is entirely absent a performance component. Like that stuff is just not applicable to the analog techniques. Right. right? But if you're talking about musicians doing a performance in front of microphones being recorded on a tape machine, you can certainly do a better job of that now than you ever could. Are there certain elements that have sort of, you know, gotten better more at a different pace than others, like microphones? Oh, do you want a certain era of microphone, but a certain era of speaker or something like that? It's kind of amazing that microphone technology went from being incredibly crude to being nearly perfect in the span of about 30 years. So by the late 30s, early 40s, essentially all of the technologies that are used in microphones had already been developed and documented and in some cases nearly perfected. And so there are microphones that were current in the 1940s or 1950s where you you literally can't do better now. Like from a technical standpoint or from an aesthetic standpoint, a lot of a lot of the very early microphones were about as good as it gets. Then, um, as technologies and manufacturing techniques improved, a lot of things that used to be rare esoteric technologies or microphones that were difficult to difficult to get a hold of because they were they used exotic materials or exotic construction techniques or whatever. A lot of those now are sort of are nearly commodity items. Like you can buy usable condenser microphones that cost $100 now as opposed to $1000. You know, and you can go to any guitar shop in America and out yourself with a kit of microphones that is serviceable and does a decent job for less than the cost of a single microphone. In it, you know, in the analog heyday. Right. So um, that's one example of a technology that was sort of that matured very quickly, and then the thing that improved over time was the ex the access to those technologies. You know, it used to be that ri ribbon mics were somewhat esoteric. You 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 didn't see ribbon microphones in every studio, and now there are dozens of companies that make new ribbon microphones on along classic patterns or along you know in you know, with respect to the classic designs, but that are now available readily and affordably everywhere in the world. So that's 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 one of the ways that that technology has developed is that the access to it has gotten a lot easier. Um, things like recording consoles, they became, they started out very simple just because the technology, uh, the electronics of the day were bulky and cumbersome, you know, vacuum tube electronics versus transistor electronics. Then the consoles got more features and they got more compact and you got more channels and that sort of thing. 
And then in the in the end of the analog era, you had these massive consoles that could have hundreds of inputs, and each channel had many, many, many redundant features. But then in the digital era, a lot of those a lot of those features were unnecessary. You you weren't using that many channels on the console anymore. And a lot of the console features would be built into a software program like Pro Tools, for example, and you wouldn't need it on the on the console. So from a, a sort of pinnacle of massive consoles that would cost you, you know, a quarter million dollars or whatever, to now consoles are very simple and very modest in that they don't have as many channels, they don't have as many features. But because there are fewer channels and because there are fewer features, they can be made to a very exacting standard. And so recording consoles that are being made now can be made to a higher um, sound quality standard than the sort of general purpose consoles um, that were made back in the day. Now, some of these consoles were made to a very high standard and they have a classic sound and they they are as good as anything will ever be. And, uh, and you know, and no slight on a, a, a beautiful old recording console. But my point is that um, as technologies change over time and as access to things changes over time, the focus of development changes. Whereas there was kind of an arms race in the 80s or the 90s for a console with the most lights on it and the most buttons on it so that the recording console could do the most things to the sound. That's not necessary anymore. So now um, you can concentrate on having a smaller number of channels that sound spectacular mm. rather than a large number of channels that were every one of them was like a utility knife or whatever. And and you've talked a lot about, uh, including to to me when we did a Tribune story, what, in 2014, about, you know, one of the main reasons to be committed to analog is that it's an actual physical record of yeah. the recording. And it's not something that software updates are going to make, like, the thing sort of go away. Yeah. Um, and, and sort of basically a lack of belief in the stability of a digital product do you think are there other aspects of digital recording that you've liked though or and that have sort of inc improved the overall quality of what music sounds like or recording sound like there are different paradigms of recording in the digital world the the features of a digital system are entirely about manipulating the sound after it's been recorded that is the, the recording of the sound is considered the beginning of the process. Right. And then there will be, you know, th there, there will be edits made, sounds will be manipulated and processed and stacked, and um, things are rarely left as they are in the digital world. That is, the majority of the energy in a digital session is spent editing, manipulating, moving, optimizing already recorded sound or like if there are 10 takes of something you like this phrase from one and this phrase from another and yeah precisely becomes this frankenstein mix or so th those are standard things in the digital realm in the analog world you can do all of those things but you only do them very specifically and for cause in the digital realm in the digital techniques those are standard methodologies that are applied sort of universally to everything so uh um you were asking if there were things about digital recording that I think were better. There 
there are some theoretical benefits, which I appreciate. The, the, the power of the processing is incredible. Like the, the fact that you can instantly duplicate and repeat passages, that you can correct tuning errors, that you can do radical sculpting of the sound. Like those are impressive kind of circus tricks that you can do in the digital paradigm that, you know, you in some cases there is no analog equivalent to those things. In most cases, there is, but in some cases, there isn't. And that's a, a definite and genuine advantage for people who are working in that paradigm is that they can take advantage of that, that kind of manipulation. The carrying on effect of that is because you have so much power in manipulation at your fingertips, everything gets manipulated. Nothing is ever left alone. And in the analog world, um, the majority of the work in perfecting or in... Um, idealizing the sound happens prior to the recording. That is, songwriting, arrangement, uh, perf rehearsal, performance, optimization of sound quality. Like, all of those things happen before you hit record to the extent possible. And then you, of course, do you'll do some work on all of those things after the fact. But the record, the moment of recording is much more pivotal. It's much more critical in the analog world. Because when you're recording something, it's there forever, you know. And when I say forever, I mean, you know, a few hundred years. I mean, w that whole notion of the studio as an instrument, you know, originated in the analog world and like the psychedelic era mm -hmm. of the 60s and stuff like that. But it was a different sort of thing, like, like you know, for all for all of how advanced Sgt. Pepper was considered at the time, like those are pretty low-tech yeah. effects they were using. What people don't appreciate is that those a lot of those psychedelic effects were practical effects, like the equivalent of, you know, singing through a cardboard tube or whatever. Like a lot of the a, a lot of the effects, a lot of the the things that were done to abstract the sound were done in real time, were done in the real world. They weren't purely electronic or they weren't technical solutions in yeah, most like, cases. Yeah, like running the vocal mic or the guitar through like the Leslie keyboard speaker or something like that. Yeah. And all of those sort of practical things, you can do those in the digital paradigm, but there are, you know, much more aggressive manipulations done every day in the in the digital paradigm. And, you know, for all of its complexity and for its intricacy, Sgt. Pepper was recorded on four track tape machines, right. you know. And that's a, a that's something that's not appreciated by people who you know don't wouldn't think of beginning a session without sort of infinite tracking available to them so um do you get artists who come in and they say you know what we just we just we we have our ideas but we want to use the studio as an instrument and we want to kind of experiment around like does that does that work with you and your well, approach i'm i'm perfectly willing to conduct a session that way but Bearing in mind the era that we live in, where everyone has a studio on their laptop, where they can do all of these studio-specific experimentations, coming into a studio where you're paying for the time in order to experiment, in order to fiddle around with things at random, is a, is a money-losing proposition. It's an inefficient way to spend what is becoming a very scarce resource of a studio budget. So most of the time when a band comes into the studio, they have their ideas fixed and they're coming into the studio to execute them rather than coming into the studio to play around and see what happens because everyone has the capability of playing around to see what happens at home for no cost. And there your time and your energy are 
essentially lim- unlimited. You can spend as much time as you want developing a crazy effect for a moment in a song because no one is charging you for that time and because you're not you're not wasting any of a, of a of a budget to to spend time at home tinkering around with something on your headphones. And I think that's a very good way to 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 sort of uh conceptualize the experimentation impulse is that if you want to get lost on a journey, you can get lost on a journey all on your own now without involving a staff of people and, you know, a janitorial crew and that sort of thing. And so I think that's a, a tremendous artistic and cultural development. I think the fact that everyone who wants to can have like an exploratory experience using all these different techniques in in the studio they everyone has access to that now it's it's not just you know take acid go up on the roof and let george martin tune the fiddles or whatever it's like you can have a kind of an experience like that you know pop an edible and spend the <laughs> evening on the headphones like i think that that's a really amazing development you know do you think cost aside there's also a sense of working with you that they consider you to be sort of more devoted to capturing performance in a certain way that maybe is not going to be about, hey, let's run these tapes backwards and let's do guitars upside down and, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, I, I I genuinely don't know why people choose to work with me. I, I know what they tell me, but in some cases I'm sure that's guarded, you know, what their genuine, like, rationale is. Um, I, ca- I have deduced from decades of doing this that one of the reasons is that I'm a bargain is that you know coming to this studio and working with this equipment and other trained engineers and a collection of high quality microphones uh, and we're using classic techniques that's an experience that some people want to have and that experience is more attainable than they might have imagined in terms of its cost it's like so that's one thing is that it, I'm relatively speaking I'm a bargain um the other one is that I've made a lot of records, which means that if you're in a band and you're in the company of musicians, you likely know someone who's been here to record and can give you a firsthand account of what the experience was, was like. So you can get a reliable report from someone you trust about whether or not you're going to have a good time if you come here. And I, I, I mean, that sort of word of mouth thing is often spoken of as networking, which I think is a, a slightly repulsive term for it. Word of mouth is better than networking. Yeah, but um, the long and short of it is I've made a lot of records and a lot of people have been here and, and been through the process. And so if you're interested in it if, it, if it appeals to you on any level, you probably know somebody you can ask to, you know, what was it like? I'm, I'm just going to guess that you know someone oh, absolutely. that has been here to make a record and you could ask that person what it was like. I know someone who was here recently. Do you know someone that's been here to record? Yeah, I'm asking everyone in the room. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and you're not you're not even principally musicians. You just know musicians. So, if you were also musicians and were spending all of your time in the company of musicians, then you would likely have multiple reports that you could glean about what the experience of working here with me was like, and and so you could evaluate that more fairly than if you just imagined the experience of working with some other engineer whose name you've read on the back of records, but you have no direct or even indirect contact with. Like, if you, you know, read a name on the back of a record and you imagine, oh, I wonder what it must be like to work with this person in this studio. In most cases, you would have a hard time finding that out. With respect to me, it's trivial. (laughs) Right. I mean, at the same time, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are like, 
hey, this guy did, you know, the Pixies and Nirvana and PJ Harvey and the Breeders and, you know, he was in Big Black and Shellac and, you know, what, you know, just start naming your resume. I, I would, I would imagine you get a fair number of people who come in and they say, oh, I want this sound because you did this. And, and I'm wondering, like, is that, do they tend to come in and say, I want that Steve Albini drum sound or that I guitar mean, sound or something like that? And then there are other people, obviously, who are doing completely different music who don't want that. Yeah, again, I mean, I only can go by what people tell me. And it's certainly the case that some people who make music that is idiomatically similar to other records I've done would want to be treated similarly. And that makes perfect sense to me in the same way that you know, if you like Greek food, you go to a Greek restaurant. You know, that that makes perfect sense. Um, I, I am always surprised uh, when people mention, when it comes up, when people mention records that I've worked on that have meant something to them. And the reason that I'm surprised is, is that they typically mention a record that is would not have been expected from the kind of music that they make. Like there'll be a, like a filthy, grungy um heavy metal band for example where you know like where they're all you know sort of character actors playing the part of a heavy metal band right and like two of them will mention this album that i did with joanna newsom who's a a, a harpist and a right. folk singer right um or someone will mention someone in a fairly conventional straightforward band will mention some of the experimental music that i've worked on as being important to them and i i think that speaks to the fact that people's tastes are much broader and much more Catholic than they're given credit for. Like, generally speaking, people don't just listen to one kind of music. If you take anybody's uh, iTunes playlist and scroll through it, you're going to be surprised, based on what you know about that person and their taste, you're going to be surprised by a significant amount of it. And I think that's kind of an, a great development of the of the sort of technological era we're in is that you can go down these weird rabbit holes and find the weirdest shit, you know, that you, you know, like, wow, it turns out I really like Senegalese guitar players. And now I'm going to go find a whole bunch of Senegalese guitar music to listen to. Or like, turns out I, I, I think I really like Cambodian pop music. So now I'm going to go find a whole bunch of Cambodian pop music. Like, those are the kind of experiences that everyone has now. Like, right. everyone curates their listening experience on this really microscopic scale, really fine-grained interest that wouldn't be catered to by a radio playlist or wouldn't be catered to even by a conventional record collection where you had to go to a store and buy a record every time. Yeah, I buy more vinyl now than I ever have. and But at the same time, if not for, you know, hearing about some, you know, some obscure Philadelphia soul artist from 1972 who then I can go listen to immediately on the internet, yeah. then maybe I'm not going and finding those albums and buying those albums. I'm like, oh, look, these Betty Davis records are pretty cool yeah. and crazy, and which is not Philadelphia soul or, you right, know, right. and Peebles, which is Memphis or, you know, you know, these other OJ's records, which is Philly soul. But, you know, I mean, and then, and then sort of weird, like kind of kraut rock and things like like these little rabbit holes you can go down because it's on these streaming services exactly or yeah youtube but at the same time then you kind of go back to the analog source if you're me or you don't if you're a lot of people one thing that i find curious is that when when i was first getting into music in the beginning of the punk rock era there were outsider fringe artists even within the outsider fringe that I was a part of right so there was there were there was a general music scene uh, there were you know the general punk music scene and then there were the 
esoteric weirdos who were on the margins of that. And even within my circle of friends, those people would be, you know, not mainstream or not the, not the people that they would have known about, right? That they were so distinctive means that now, decades later, people who are decades younger than me who are getting into music are following the same threads and the same tendrils that invigorated me about this music when it was new. So let's say in 1980, if I was having a conversation with another punk music enthusiast, and I mentioned the band Metallurbane, who are a French electronic punk band of the era. They, their records came out in the late 70s and early 80s. Most people would not have heard of that band. Or if I mentioned Suicide, an experimental music band that sort of survived across the punk era, but were not really directly related to the punk era. Or Silver Apples, who are another electronic band, sort of a precursor to the band Suicide. If I was having a conversation with another punk music fan in, the, in say, the 1980s, those would have been considered obscure, and they probably, they may have heard of one or two of them, but not all of them. If I have a conversation with a young person who has gotten into punk music of that era, and I have that same conversation with them, they'll be familiar with all of those artists. They'll be familiar with all of them, and they'll have the same appreciation for them that I did because access to it is no longer restricted. Like, it used to be if a record was rare, you never heard it. Right. And now, if a record is rare, it's actually easier to hear because people post rare records up on YouTube so that you can hear them, you know? Yeah, and I remember hearing about Big Star, and it was just like, because I, you know... In buckets of brains, you know, Peter Buck or Mike Mills would have it on their 10 best, you know, Desert Island disc list. And I'd be like, where is this Radio City? How do I hear that? And now, you know, you could buy like 15 different colored vinyl versions yeah. of it. And uh, Pylon, um, Pylon Box came out and there's a booklet in there. And you wrote an essay in there about yeah. seeing them when you were at Northwestern and how formative they were. And, you know, they're like this, you know, little Athens, Georgia band, you know, between you know, the more commercially successful B-52s and R.E.M. And I mean, I, I knew them, you know, from then, but I had, but by the first exposure I had to them was the R.E.M. covering Crazy. Mm. But you had a very nice essay about that. And now it's like, you know, it's big box with a book and colored vinyl or not colored vinyl stuff. And, and Pylon is like sort of this form, you know, it's kind of a building block of that music. But if you, if you were to find um, musicians who are active con contemporaneous with pylon especially uh, underground musicians in the south like from georgia north carolina um, every one of them would have pointed to pylon as being like a leading figure in the underground music scene in the south during that era every single one of them yeah they you know as, as notable as you could be in that scene they were an extremely notable band they never achieved sort of mainstream commercial penetration so it takes something like the collective will of all of those people to get them the kind of attention that they that they warranted, that they warranted because all of the bands that were directly influenced by them would say, yeah, we were directly influenced by Pylon in the same way that Pylon would have said, yeah, we were directly influenced by the B-52s. You know, um, it, they're as influential and as important within that community. So to really generalize it, you know, looking back, do you think is digital a good thing for music overall in terms of, and I'm including like the whole internet, everything that's digital. Is that something that has helped music overall or is it still something that if you could wave a magic wand and make it go away, you would? 
absolutely not waving in that magic wand. Like the the access that people have now to music, such that it allows them to indulge the specificity of their tastes, the way the way I was describing earlier. Like that's such an enormous benefit that even if there are some drawbacks to it, like the fact that compensation for records is now much, much worse than it used to be, that, you know, the streaming services, for example, are even worse than record companies in terms of their exploitation of the artists. Taking all of that on board, just the access to music and the access to an audience for artists, like if if you're a bedroom artist where you just make music to amuse yourself... It's now possible that you can go directly from your laptop in your bedroom to a worldwide audience, like with bypassing all of the show business steps in between. And an, an extre- you know, and a number of significant artists have done that already. You know, like uh, Lil Nas X, for example, like went from being a, somebody who was making music to amuse himself to being an international smash. You know. Um, Billie Eilish, for example, went from making music with her brother at home to being an international superstar. And all of that is a direct result of the technological development, right, that has enabled the democratization of the process of making music. Now, I've mentioned some people that were commercially successful and have done things on a, on a big scale. I don't, that, to me, that's not the most important part of it. The most important part of it is that now every person who's ever wanted to make music can make music and they're doing these intensely personal odd things with this power that they've gotten of this access that they've got now there's there's an example that I, I i like is there's a woman in england who releases music under the name billy nomates she was amusing herself with music making programs and she made some recordings of herself and she got them into the hands of some people that she liked. And almost overnight, she was accepted as a peer by those people. Mm. And her music started to be disseminated by them. She collaborated with people like the Sleaford Mods, for example. They were her favorite band at the time. And within a year, she was doing collaborations with them on their record. You know, She's just finished a tour with them in England. She's just put, She put out her own album last year. And this is all like intensely personal homemade music music made with the simplest of tools you know and and i think that's amazing i don't i don't think the commercial success of something is an is an indication of its importance what i think is a, an indication of its importance is the fact that it's now anyone can do it it's not just if you happen to own a guitar or if you happen to be in the company of other people that want to form a band with you or if you happen to have access to this sort of specialized equipment, like literally you can do it on your iPhone, you know, and I, that to me is such an overwhelmingly positive development that whatever negative associations I make with the way that the digital paradigm is kind of denigrated other aspects of music technology, other aspects of music and other aspects of technology, that cultural good is so great that it's totally worth it, 100% worth it. Like the digital revolution may very well put me out of business in terms of me being a, a studio owner with a big studio that's full of real estate and expensive equipment and fancy microphones and a staff and, you know, my overhead is extraordinary and all of those things mean nothing with respect to the ease of use of the digital paradigm, right? So 
if I end up being put out of business by this shift, it's still worth it. Like, you know, my life's work down the drain, <laughs> still worth it. You know? Well, I was wondering, you know, whether there's, whether it's actually sort of a positive, like, like when I did that Tribune story, my, my uh, premise basically was everyone is like garage band or pro tools in their basement. Sure. And so how do is like, you know, like CRC and all of the, the, these places sort of keep going and, um, you know, and the, the one thing with electrical audio is that you're such a defined, like what you do is so defined that, and, and that, that is a specific approach that is not the same as your generic, whatever other studios there are. And so what I'm wondering is whether having more people having access to the digital stuff maybe gets them to have the bug of hey, I've been buying a lot of vinyl because vinyl's back. Maybe it would be cool to record like a AAA classic sounding record with Steve Albini at Electrical Audio. And so then maybe that actually helps your business as opposed to everyone just is used to doing stuff on their own digital technology and everything sounding super compressed and they just don't want to deal with it. Uh I mean, that's an interesting notion. And if you, if you wanted to start a promotional campaign to that effect, sure. then, you know, by all means, my, um, I, I think people don't think about things in that way. I think people think people can hear the results of their work and they're either happy or they're dissatisfied and they can hear the results of doing things along using classic processes and techniques and they can imagine extrapolating themselves into that scenario and i think that resonates with people on a very base level i don't think it's nearly as intellectual um a, a process i don't think there's as much strategizing about it as you as you're making out it's more a matter of i play in a three-piece rock band all of my favorite records were recorded simply and here's a place where we can do precisely that let's give it a shot because that's the way all of our all my favorite records were done or i have this grandiose notion of my music i want it to sound like this classically orchestrated and performed masterpiece these little synthetic simulacrums are not doing it for me i want the real thing i want to hear an orchestra playing in a room playing one of my songs i want to hear a 12-piece band cranking while i sing over the top of it there are becoming fewer and fewer places where you can have that experience and you know it's a normal aspect of any technological development that businesses that are tied to a previous generation are eventually going to, you know, are going to fall off one after another until there are only a few left. And the ones that are left are the ones that still provide value in that idiom. I see more, you know, just from looking on Facebook pages, Reddit pages, like stuff that I didn't used to look at myself, um, partly out of, you know, sort of like getting going deeper on some vinyl and music stuff or whatever but i just see i so so maybe it's just again everyone has their own little personal twitter feed of information they're getting on the internet but i certainly see a lot more about analog is this analog analog versus digital the advantages of mm. of that and so i would think that would bode well and could help with this promotional campaign that we're going to come <laughs> up with when we're done uh, doing this podcast interview but but i just i hear a lot of that. Well, uh, uh, there is some kind of s snake oil there. Like a lot of people attribute to the analog process a kind of magic, which it absolutely does not possess. The analog processes and techniques are 
mature technologies that have been worked out over a long period of time, and they're optimized for their job. So an analog engineer will be very careful about the processes and and do as accurate a recording as is possible. Like that's job one is to make an accurate recording, right? What people attribute to analog as its kind of magical sound are either engineering errors where someone did something mistakenly or they're mistaken about the that it's that it's part of the process and i think in a lot of cases the critical mind tends to short change the creativity of the artists and the and the and the quality of the people making the music because they're looking for an externality that they can attribute the greatness of a record to. Mm. They don't want to say, oh, these simpletons, how could these dumb people make an amazing piece of music? It must be because they had Phil Spector, you know, or it must be because they were using this horn section, or it must be because they were using this classic studio and this classic equipment and the classic production techniques, when the reality is that the people playing the notes, the people who dreamed this music up and executed it, those people deserve the credit, you know? And you see it, it, it's it's quite parochial as well. Like you hear it, like... the the musical output of Jamaica from through the 60s and 70s is incredible, considering what a small population it is, what an extraordinary number of really distinctive, unique, incredible-sounding records came out of there, right? And all the shifts from one era to the next is like, oh, this is like... This was ska, but then this was rock steady, and then this was reggae, a musical. Like- exactly. And at every stage, there were, you know, iconic records made, right? People are always looking for an externality to credit that distinction to. Like, oh, what was what was the recording console at Studio One? Like, oh, you had this crazy genius working there. It must have been, you know, it, what what it, when it was in fact people who were good at their job, right? And people who were accurately recording interesting performances and interesting musical ideas, you know. I think now it's like you got your 50th anniversary of this record and your 40th of that and your 20th of that. I mean, I saw the 20th of In Utero in your in mm-hmm. your lounge and realized even that's like 20, even that 20-year anniversary version of that is eight years old, so yeah. it made me feel old. But but then, so then these things come out and these new issues and you could, well, do you have the, the 40th anniversary or the 50th anniversary right. of this record? Well, this one has these lacquers cut by this person and their AAA. This one was from sure. a high quality digital that went back to analog. So, but there is this sort of like, people are asking, well, is it AAA? And so there, it's so... Do they really know that, you know, can you really tell the difference or is it just sort of like they're kind of like... There's a practical consideration in some of these things. Like analog master tapes are durable. Right. So I can tell you because I was involved in the execution of it from start to finish that the, the Nirvana album that I worked on, its 20th anniversary edition was made to absolutely the most exacting standards that I could possibly describe. The mastering was done directly into a copper disc that is a direct metal master from the original master tapes, not from a production master. Uh, the records were plated and manufactured using the full DMM process. And just from a, an experience standpoint, listening to that version of the record is a much closer 
experience in my sense memory to me listening to the master tape played back than any other edition of the record. So I can say that that record was executed very carefully, and it's an exceptional version. It's an exceptional rendition of those original master tapes, right? Yeah. It's as accurate as I know how to make a record. See, and that's an example of something where when it came out, it was totally the CD era, and I have that album on CD, and I've never gotten it on vinyl, and I'm sure this would sound way better than well, talking about. Well, you know, anyway, feel free to have to to listen to it and tell me, but I, but I will when I listen to the production version of that in the day the experience wasn't that satisfying when i listened to this reissue version where all the manufacturing steps were taken very seriously and it, where it was done carefully as opposed to just being done as a commodity then the experience is different and it does sound familiar to me it sounds like i'm it the experience at home is very much like listening to the master tapes in the studio but my point being those are analog master tapes, right. and they have survived, and they can take advantage of, for example, these improvements in playback quality that are possible now over the playback quality from when they were new, right? They can take advantage of those things. In the digital domain, things are frozen at an era of technology, and they cannot possibly get better. Like, there is no extra infra no extra data in a 16-bit file that can be extracted at a later date. Whereas if you have an analog master tape that's poorly rendered or rendered as a commodity in its day, if you take extra care and do more careful transfer and more careful execution, you can make a better, more right. detailed, more revealing version of that from an analog master. That's not possible from a digital master. And in some cases, and in, in all cases eventually, the digital master will become unplayable because the uh, the digital formats change over time and they're all proprietary. So, for example, the earliest digital recordings that were done on 3M and Mitsubishi and Sony open reel digital tapes, most of those are unplayable now, either because there are no working machines that can play them or because the t tapes themselves have de materially deteriorated somewhat. Uh, those that were done in the in the workstation era on formats like Pro Tools, those a lot of those files have survived. But in some instances, you have a proprietary format that requires a specific piece of hardware to play it back, and now that's impossible. That's not generically true for workstation style digital recording but the early digital recordings were done on dedicated hardware where you'd have this tape machine could only play this manufacturer's tapes you know so if you have a master on this format you can only play it on one machine in the world you know right and I mean, that's not true of analog tapes analog recordings are universal it's a mature technology that's open source and you could literally build a tape machine in your garage if you wanted to and it would work just as well as a tape machine that was built in a factory yeah i guess the digital people i'm guessing would say well but when you make a copy of the digital it's exactly the same anyway so it doesn't really matter because long as you can keep making copies that are updated but yeah but no one is doing that no one is making these endless series of digital updated copies of master tapes or of masters no one is doing it i i appreciate that it is conceptually possible right. to have 
someone dedicated to doing nothing but copying your digital files into ever-changing formats over time and updating the software so that those files are then readable and make, maintaining a constant active archive of your material. I appreciate that that is technically possible, but no one is doing it. And archival stuff aside, there is an aesthetic difference, too, that your ear can still perceive the difference between one and the other, right? I, I take people's word for it that they, ha they can hear a difference and have a preference between a digital master and an analog master. I know when I'm working in an analog setting, I am trying as hard as possible to make the input and the output the same. And I have heard digital systems, early digital systems, like the 15 and 16-bit digital systems, sounded terrible. The conversion technology was bad. Uh, there was a lot of data corruption. There was a lot of error concealment. And so those early digital formats, up to and including the CD, sounded bad to my ear. Like I, when I would hear them, it would be an unsatisfying listen. That's not true of current high-resolution and high-definition digital formats. Like the 24-bit high, you know, the 24-bit systems that are available now for digital recording, I think, sound fine. Like on a pure sound quality level, I have no complaints with them. And, uh, you know, my sole and unfortunately rather stubborn uh, reservation about digital recording is that it it's not a permanent solution right. to an archival master. So when you're home listening to music, how are you listening to it? I listen on records. My wife has a, a smart speaker and she will just shout at it, you know, <laughs> you know, play Bill Withers. And so, and then some Bill Withers comes out. But um, if I'm playing records, I'm, I'm playing records. But so you're not like sort of like cruising around YouTube looking for stuff? Oh, just for snakes, you know, when I have the computer open and I'm killing time, yeah, I'll, I'll tool around on YouTube or Bandcamp. I quite like Bandcamp. I think it's a nice interface. And yeah, it's, yeah. And I, 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 I think of the streaming platforms, I think Bandcamp is the one that I can that that seems at least to be sympathetic to the predicament of the artist. So has so over over your years, you know, working in the music yeah. industry, has it become more or less exploitative to artists? The degree of exploitation at the highest level, that is the level of the administration of uh, professionals and not people who are playing and performing music, that degree of exploitation has not changed. That is, the streaming services, the major streaming services are as exploitative or, or worse than the record labels were. And the record labels were as exploitative or worse than the sort of um, controlling managerial people were, like people, the sort of Svengali's of music who would um, sign artists to uh, managerial contracts and then keep all the money, you know, the sort of Colonel Tom caliber uh, managerial people. And those people are as bad or worse than the record labels who were buying uh, songs from blues artists for a case of beer and then making millions off of them. So th that... The degree of exploitation has not changed. It's if if you are a musician, you are still responsible for making your own living, basically, as has always been the case. Do you think it's is it is it any easier now, or it doesn't seem like it? Certain aspects are easier. Things like booking a tour, finding a way to release your music, um, communicating with people around the world about your music, building a fan base, building an audience for yourself. Those things are much easier. The Internet has made all of those things much, much, much easier. Um, selling records now 
if you can get a record manufactured, which is proving difficult in the era of scarcity, but if you can get a record manufactured, selling the record, you now have multiple outlets for selling your records independently. You no longer need to go through distribution networks or a record label or even conventional retail stores. So there are aspects of it that are much, much easier and more efficient. Your relationship with your audience, for example, can now be unfiltered. Like people can literally text you and you can speak directly to them as opposed to having to go through a, a publicist and, um, you know, uh, magazine interviews and things of that nature. But so certain aspects of it are much, much easier and much, much more efficient. But uh, making a living as a musician has always been difficult and it I, I don't see it getting easier. Are there any artists that you really like whose music you like, but you listen to their recordings and you think... Uh, there's so much, I don't know, compression, digital stuff, whatever the approach is, that I'd love to get into electrical audio and eh, record them. I'm I'm pretty agnostic about pe- other people's methods. Like, I have my methods, and I have my rationale for doing things the way I do it. And I trust other people to hear their own music and decide that they've done it correctly. And I'm 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 not particularly critical of the sound quality of other people's music. I'm, I'm I think when people are working on their music, they're paying attention, and they're careful, and they are crafting it in a, a manner that suits them. And if it doesn't suit me, that's not their fault. You know, I I class that as a listener error on my part. If you've made a record and you're 100% satisfied with it, and I hear it and I think, hmm, hi-hat's too loud. <laughs> you know, like that, that's that's a very petty moment on my part as a listener. Right. And I'm just not, I, I just, I, I don't want to indulge that kind of thinking. Have you ever allowed yourself to have that thought of, boy, this would be the dream artist to to record here. Yeah, I mean, of course, there are people that I've always admired, and that it would be a fantasy fulfillment to be able to work with. But that's not that's not a very realistic way to spend my time and energy. Like, I'm grateful for the fact that I have gotten to work with a lot of people who are genuine heroes of mine. Like, I've done sessions with the Stooges and Cheap Trick and Fred Schneider and you know other people who I consider personal heroes. And we've become friends, and those relationships have survived beyond just the reckoning of making a session, you know? And that that's an incredible, incredibly satisfying thing for me. So I, I'm... I, I'm not going to I'm not going to shed any tears over, you know, the one that got away. So who do you want in here most? If I had to pick one? Yes. I'll say Crazy Horse. New album just came out like this week, so yeah. they, get them get them in here. They're That'd still cool. at it. Still still got it. That would work in here. That would be awesome. Well, Steve Albini, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's it for episode 16 of Caropop. Thanks so much to Steve Albini for inviting us into electrical audio and giving us the lowdown on what and how he does what he does. Please return next week for part two of our conversation as Albini gets more specific about his recording experiences and labeled politics, especially in regards to Nirvana's In Utero. You won't want to miss it. A big thanks to the Carol Pop team, including web developer Marty Rosenbaum and Lou Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake who requires no remixing and has a great drum sound. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Carroll, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks.